Kings chapter two. We'll read the text as we go through. My title this morning is partiality, and I think that term is employed in two different ways in the text, and we'll see that in our Roman one and Roman two. In, um, if, if you think of James as some authors and commentators do, as a series of, of, of tests of a living faith, and that's one lens, one sort of interpretive scaffolding we can put around the book of James. If that's the case, then in chapter one, we saw three of these tests. First, we saw how, how does a living faith respond to trials? That was on January 3rd. On January 10th, we looked at how does a living faith respond to temptation? And then just last week on the 17th, we looked at how does a living faith respond to God's word? And this morning, as we round the corner into chapter two, we, we could say, well, this is, this is a look at how living faith conducts itself in the face of a temptation to partiality among people. So Roman numeral one, partiality in how we demonstrate love. The first seven verses. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, <clears throat> and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one that wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Let me pause there and, and look at Roman A in the outline if you've got it. Don't pander to the world's winners. Now it's, it's difficult for us to, to pick this text up from the life of those mid first century churches that James is addressing and straight pipe to the practices in our church. Because what we, what we don't have are, are ushers who show people two particular seats. You, know, you come in the foyer and you're, you're attached to an usher and an usher walks you. So we don't have a problem with such ushers sorting people out. Ooh, this dude looks like a winner. Let's make sure he's front and center. This dude looks like a bum. Let's make sure we hide him in a back corner. We don't have a, a direct application of that behavior because our church customs are different. What we do have in common with our first century brothers and sisters is a temptation to regard highly regard more highly those who seem to be more VIP-ish in the world. Some celebrity gets saved. 
Ooh, boy, the kingdom got a good one. The kingdom got a good one. And the, and the, and the, the social media lights up. The Christian blogosphere lights up because somebody who's got nationwide name recognition has evidently come to Christ. Meanwhile, at the McGregor Food Pantry that same week, eight or 10 people that you'll never hear of have come to faith in Christ and nobody's writing headlines. This is a grievous sin. Our temptation to pander to the world's winners, to treat worldly VIPs of whatever sort, be it wealth, fame, political power, that when a, a worldly VIP aligns with us, it matters more or within the church when someone's giftedness, visibility causes us to be, look, the church has one VIP. His name is Jesus. Sure, we, we honor those to whom honor is due, but we, we let us respect somebody's faithfulness, not their fame, their walk, not their wealth, their piety, not their power. So we don't pander to the world's winners. Further, we don't punish the world's losers. Same verses. We're a great big, we have a great big visible church building on a busy street. And we are from time to time blessed to have people come into our worship services who are evidently struggling. And if their welcome is ever any less than the bright, shiny little family that looks like us, talks like us, behaves like us, and fits right in, if we have a lesser welcome for someone who's hurting, struggling, maybe economically different than some of us, maybe ethnically different than some of us, behaviorally different than some of us because they don't know the rules of church conduct as well as you and I do. If that person, no, no. If we fail in our hospitality to that person, our Lord would judge that a profound failure. We will not punish the world's losers. We will not pander to the world's winners. 
You and I were desperately lost. And if we have given our hearts to Jesus, we have now been saved in spite of our sin. That doesn't make us more important. That makes Jesus more important. You and I just don't matter much. Nobody else who comes through that door matters more or less than anybody else. Partiality. Letter C, just as a reminder, James reminds us, and by the way, while you're, while you're tempted to make a big deal out of the big deal people and try to, try to sweep the undesirables somewhere off into a corner, don't forget that historically, the Lord finds most of his, not all, but the Lord finds most of his friends among the undesirables. That's the history of redemptive work from the outcast, ragtag, slave nation, Israel, to the present day. Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich and heirs of the kingdom? which he's promised to those who love him. You have dishonored the poor man. Meanwhile, the rich and important that you're trying to suck up to are not the rich, the ones who oppress you. They drag you into court. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Most of the world's VIPs will never be a friend of the cause of Christ. The word of God says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. And so most people who achieve worldly VIP status, well, let's just say that's not been historically the Lord's richest harvest field. Yet we want to treat them like they're a bigger deal. We mustn't. And we mustn't do it inside the church either. Jesus is a big deal. You and I are not. All right, Roman numeral two, partial obedience to the law. <clears throat> There's a lot of theology in this paragraph, and it's important theology. All theology is important, but this, this is very foundational stuff. Partial obedience to the law. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, that is, Christ's summation of the law of God regarding the part of the law of God that regards human relationships. James here calls it the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you really do that, you're doing well. It's a good thing. If you would say, the, the practice of my life tendentially is that I seek to love others as I love myself, and that's a good thing. You're doing, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, the idea is if you're doing that, if you're seeking to love people the way you want to be loved, but you show partiality, you're committing a sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. A letter A on your outline on Roman 2, I call that designer righteousness. What do I mean designer righteousness? You know, most of my life, when you went to buy a dress shirt, there, there are two numbers in play the size of that shirt. Guys, your, your neck circumference and your sleeve length, right? I mean, that's what's on the tag if you went to the department store and looked at shirts. But somebody put me on 
to the fancy shirt site. They're not that much more expensive. You know, there are sites out there, guys, where you can go and they've got about 15 different measurements you have to put in. I'm talking about cuff circumference, length of arm from elbow to wrist, length of arm from shoulder to elbow, shoulder circumference, chest, myriad other measurements. I told Gail, I said, I can never order a shirt from that website because if I ordered the shirt and then ate some pizza, by the time the shirt comes, it won't fit. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's, it's custom, it's designer. Here's our problem. We wanna do designer righteousness. We wanna pick out the areas where we're doing pretty well. You know what? I always put my shopping cart back in the corral at Publix. You will not lose a parking place because I got slovenly and rolled my cart into an adjacent parking place and messed you up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm a righteous man. Brother Russell, ever have a lustful thought about anybody but Gail? I put my card away! <laughs> and I don't shoplift while I'm at Publix. Ever make a five-minute personal phone call in an hour that your employer has purchased from you at an agreed-upon price, and you took back five minutes and made a personal phone call? Yeah, 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 but, but, uh, but I don't smoke. See how it works? We want to design our own righteousness by picking and choosing the, the points of con perceived conformity with God where we're doing okay. But here's what God's word says. Now, this, this speaks to the context, but it's larger than the immediate context. Verse 10 articulates a theological principle. In context, he's talking about partiality. Broadly, he states this truth. For whoever, and this is letter B on your outline, God's monolithic law. Whoever keeps the whole law keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. If you do not understand James 2.10, your understanding of the nature of condemnation before a holy God will be grievously flawed. On another day, we may talk about degrees of guilt and punishment. I'm not talking about degrees of guilt here. I'm talking about the presence of guilt and the condemnation that travels with that guilt. 
For whoever, pardon me, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. The 10 Commandments from Exodus 20. Number one, have no other gods. Martin Luther said, whatever you hold dear and have faith in, that is your God. You ever trusted anything other than the living God? Lawbreaker, transgressor. Number two, don't make an idol and elevate it to a place of worship, whether with your hands or with your mind. Has anything ever had to compete with the living God for the best of your attention? Lawbreaker. You are as condemned before God as Ted Kaczynski, Adolf Hitler. Condemned! You keep the whole law but offend in one point. Guilty of all of it. Condemned. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. You ever said, oh my Lord, and you weren't talking to him in prayer? Lawbreaker. Remember the seventh day set it apart for the Lord. Ever work a seven day work week? Oh, come on, Russell, work a seven day work week? Hey, I am not the author of these. He said, look, I can create the world in six days and then I take a day off. You take six days, but you better take a day and give that day wholly to me. Honor your father and mother. Ever have a dishonorable thought regarding your parents? You are guilty of the entirety of God's law. Don't murder. And you say, Whew, finally, I don't think I've ever actually killed anybody. And then Jesus comes along in the Sermon on the Mount and elevates hatred to a moral equivalent. Ever wish somebody was dead? Maybe you didn't get around to killing them, but you concluded that your life would be a happier place if they were dead? Lawbreaker. Do not commit adultery. Maybe some of you are safe from that one too until, again, Jesus' elevated definition, if you've ever had a lustful thought about somebody to whom you are not married, lawbreaker, don't steal. That five-minute phone call in an hour you had sold to somebody else, that was not your hour, that was their hour. You had agreed to sell it, you had agreed upon the price, it was not your hour, and you stole five minutes of it back. Did you, did you contact your employer and say, look, for that hour, you only need to pay me for 55 minutes? I bet you didn't. Lawbreaker. You should not bear false witness. Don't let any sentence out of your mouth that's not true. Has a sentence out of your mouth ever been untrue? You are guilty before God as much as one who has systematically set out to break all of his laws. And finally, don't covet your neighbor's house. Ephesians 5 calls covetousness idolatry. 
because looping back from the 10th to the first commandment, covetousness is idolatry because covetousness is somebody else has got the situation or the stuff or the spouse. Somebody else has got what I ought to have. So God in his providence has misdesigned the universe. So there somewhere would be a better version of God. So covetousness is idolatry. And because of that, according to Ephesians 5, the wrath of God is coming on the children of disobedience. Let me tell you one of the most grievous moments I ever had. Sitting at my desk, and this is old, this is one of our comment cards from back, it's pre-COVID and probably two designs ago, but I kept it. I kept it to remind me that the task of teaching and encouraging one another with truth from God's word is never ending. Some Sunday morning, I suppose a couple of years back, I must have made a similar point about the utter perfection that God requires of his people, not, pardon me, that God uses as the standard of his judgment apart from Christ. We'll get to Christ in a moment. But that his standard of condemnation is utter holiness, utter holiness, or you stand condemned before him as a thoroughgoing lawbreaker. Somebody wrote a card that morning. Quote. Who I remember, I remember praying, Lord, please may it be that whoever wrote this card is not a member of our church. Because if whoever wrote this card is a member of our church, we have failed in our teaching of God's word. Their life group has failed if they're in a life group. This platform has failed if they are a member of this church. Because the person wrote, do you think a human father would send their child to hell for a tiny, inconsequential sin? If you could write the words, tiny, inconsequential sin. I would flunk you out of every Sunday school, vacation Bible school, and church pulpit. You have learned nothing of the nature of sin and the nature of the holiness of God. Whoever wrote this couldn't theolog their way out of a wet paper sack. And the good news is it's not signed. Tiny, inconsequential sin there is no such category. If we have only tiny inconsequential sin, we need only a tiny inconsequential savior. And we don't need redemption, we just need a bit of polishing. And the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is a joke. And it is our general self-righteousness that makes us right before God, for we only deal with tiny, inconsequential sin. Covetousness, for example. That's a tiny, inconsequential sin, but according to both Colossians and Ephesians, it is a reason for the wrath of God to come on the children of disobedience. There is no tiny, inconsequential sin. And if you think you can design your own righteousness, in the immediate context, he's talking about people who have only one tiny little issue. They're showing partiality. But this issue is larger than the immediate context. And if you think you can pick and choose areas of your life where you're doing okay, 
and regard as less important areas in your life where there is still unforgiven sin because you have not come to Christ, you will stand before a God who will judge you by his perfection and he will condemn you righteously to hell for your tiny, inconsequential sin. Where is hope? Turning back to believers in verse 12, he says, Roman 3, judgmentalism and liberty. Letter A, your words, talking to believers, your words and your works must reflect the grace you have received. For you stood condemned, having broken God's law. To whatever degree you stood as condemned as history's greatest villain, whomever that is to you. But if you're a believer, you must so speak your words and so act your works as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. This may be the theme verse for the book of James. That those of us who are in Christ must remember to conduct ourselves in word and work as those who will stand in judgment, but who will be liberated from the consequences of our sin because of the grace we have received from Christ. He uses the term here, law of liberty, as a, as a description of the gospel. Oh, guilty friend, come to Jesus. Believer, put your, put your high horse in a corral far from you and leave it there. Sinner, saved by grace, you have no room for partiality. You have no room to regard your own righteousness highly, for it is a filthy wreck. And only by the righteousness of Christ do you stand right with God. Let her be finally, if it is not true that you would deal with others mercifully, and graciously in light of the law of liberty, there's a real problem. He says it like this, for judgment is without mercy for one who has shown no mercy. He does not mean that you will lose your salvation if you are merciless in your dealings with people. He means if you are merciless in your dealings with people, it is an indication of a complete lack of Christian character and a Complete lack of Christian character telegraphs that you are not in Christ. Then he concludes this paragraph with another of those big, loud theological statements. As James 2.10 speaks to the context but speaks loudly beyond the context, so does this little sentence at the end of verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It is the only thing that does. All of humanity stands in one of two positions before God. Most of humanity will be the recipient of his divine, precise 
just, omniscient judgment. And he has told us that the fact that the driver's side of the windshield never got broken doesn't mean we didn't break the windshield. The fact that when the chain broke and the engine block fell to the garage floor, it does not matter that most of the links didn't break. We have broken his law and his judgment will reflect that condemnation unless mercy triumphs over judgment, which it does in the case of all who will repent of their sin and come to faith in Christ. Only mercy, his mercy, triumphs over his judgment.